Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, we're going back to school, a school that focused on psychological torture rather than education. This is the story of the Elan School for Troubled Teens that operated for over 40 years. A school that irrevocably damaged thousands of lives through their use of extreme behavior modification practices. I have been closely following this story for about 10 years now. This all took place in my home state of Maine. I frequently spent time in the areas where Elan operated, but I never knew of its existence until later in life. And I have so much to say about this one, so it's going to be a two-parter. To enhance your listening experience of the story, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are founder Joe Ritchie, co-founder psychiatrist Dr. Gerald E. Davidson, as well as pics of famous alumni and photos of some, quote, punitive techniques that were used on the students, including forcing students to walk around in pink bunny suits, because this school surprisingly loved to document, flaunt, and advertise their methods. Yep, it's going to be a bumpy bus ride. So the Elon School came onto my radar when I was listening to an audio essay by one of my all-time favorite authors, David Sedaris. I especially love his accounts about his childhood, growing up one of six kids in a big Greek family back in the 60s. They're my favorite stories to fall asleep to. But this particular essay is one of the most heartbreaking ones I read. Um, I think it's titled Now We Are Five, where he mentions that his younger sister Tiffany was getting into trouble as a preteen, smoking weed and running away. His mother and father were at their wits end. So at the age of 14, they send Tiffany Sedaris to the Elan School for Troubled Kids up in Maine. He claims the family was not allowed to visit her. They rarely heard from her. And she was gone for a few years until she, quote, graduated. 
And from that point on, David Sedaris says that any conversation he had with his sister, Tiffany, she would bring up the Elon school and what happened to her there. And Tiffany continued to struggle with severe mental health issues until she died by suicide in 2013 at the age of 49. So that was my early introduction. And then the last podcast on the left did an excellent three-part series on the troubled teen industry that included the Elon school. Last podcast on the left isn't going to be for everyone. They have the humor of teenage boys and some of their episodes run over two hours long and they go pretty hard into the creepy pasta type cases. But that being said, when they do cover a topic that's in my wheelhouse, I can't get enough of it. They've done a handful of some of my favorite series that I will revisit over and over again. And that's all because last podcast on the left has a key superpower. That is the power of co-host Marcus Parks. This guy is an incredible researcher. My favorite example of this is their captivating coverage on the history of the Mormon church based on Marcus's extensive research. He delved into some of the densest source material and historical documents, then transformed it into an entertaining, informative package. And they utilized that same superpower when it came to their coverage on the troubled teen industry. So if you want a further deep dive, I'm talking over five hours, check out the last podcast on the left, episodes 517 through 519. And without further ado, let's get into it. Allow me to introduce Joe Ritchie, the brains behind this demented institution. He was born in Port Chester, just about an hour north of New York City in 1945. The son of Italian immigrants, his dad sounded like a real piece of work. Richie's father was an alcoholic with the nickname Bamboo, because when he would frequently get into bar fights, he always would bounce back after taking a punch. Eventually, Joe Richie's mother signs custody of him over to his maternal grandparents. Little Joe had some issues as a child. Some of these details have been verified by friends and family, and some may be exaggerations or all-out fabrications made up by Joe later on. The story goes that at age 12, he suffered injuries from a car accident and started self-medicating. Eventually, he does a short stint in a facility for troubled youths. He misses a few years of high school and tries to go back, but eventually drops out at the age of 21, though he later claims that he graduated. He also claims that he was addicted to heroin, but some friends called that into question as a convenient excuse for Joe to get out of criminal trouble. For example, there was that time he robbed a mail truck, and instead of spending seven years in prison, Joe does a much shorter two-year stint at the now infamous Daytop Rehab Center. Daytop was founded by a former member of Synanon, that weird drug rehab place in California that later turned into a straight-up cult. And you can learn more about the story of Synanon in the podcast series The Sunshine Place. Daytop was also the center that Nancy Reagan made a stop at during the 1980 campaign trail, and she was just so impressed with the mission. She credits this visit as her inspiration behind her Just Say No campaign to educate the youth about drug abuse, encouraging teenagers across the U.S. to just say no and stop experimenting with drugs and start experimenting with interesting jelly bean flavors. Joe Ritchie was also inspired by the program. 
After he completes it, he marries his first wife, Sherry, at the age of 24. And at this point, I think he's working at a rehab program in Connecticut called DarTech, of which he'll later take credit for starting, but he didn't. Instead, he actually goes on to start the Elon School, partnering with a very mysterious doctor. Dr. Gerald E. Davidson. And there are some out there that think Dr. Davidson was this secret mastermind behind the whole program, that he was actually the brains and Joe Ritchie was just the public face. And this next part of the Elon school story can get a little into the conspiracy theory territory, especially if you tune into the coverage on the last podcast on the left. And it's because Dr. Gerald Davidson is perfect for conspiracy theory fodder. Because there's hardly any info on the guy, especially his early years and background. What we do know for sure is that he worked as a psychologist at Harvard Medical School and at Mass General. He was in the psychology department at Harvard the same time the university was associated with several controversial behavior modification studies. Dr. Gerald Davidson would have been colleagues with Henry Murray, that guy who ran those interrogation techniques on Harvard students, including a young, bright 16-year-old student named Ted Kaczynski, who later goes on to become the Unabomber. And Dr. Davidson would also have been colleagues with Dr. Matthew Israel, who later went on to start the Judge Rottenberg Educational Center. This center pioneered a lot of aversion therapies, like using shock treatments on autistic children. Yeah, I know. And Dr. Davidson was operating at Harvard the same time the CIA was funding the illegal MKUltra human experimentation programs on its U.S. citizens. A lot of the MKUltra papers were destroyed after Watergate. But after several inquiries and investigations, the late Ted Kennedy admitted during a Senate hearing that the deputy director of the CIA revealed that over 30 universities, including Harvard, were involved in an extensive testing and experimentation program. The New York Times will later report that that number was at least 80 universities, institutions, and mental health facilities which included covert drug tests on unwitting citizens. An extra fun fact, several of these tests involved the administration of LSD to unwitting subjects in social situations. I am frankly outraged on behalf of all of those students because I see this as a major missed opportunity in marketing. These universities should have promoted the fact that LSD was included in the cost of tuition. Enrollment would have skyrocketed, and then they wouldn't have needed that shady secret CIA funding. And speaking of shady funding, there is some mystery behind the startup funding of the Elon School. An investor named David Goldberg is given credit for some of the startup funding. But there's speculation that the DuPont family was maybe involved. And here is where we start to get into some pretty wild conspiracy territory. There is a theory that perhaps in its earliest years, the Elon School was created to run experiments and collect data for the CIA. Some of the earliest students later recall feeling like they were being experimented on. And what perhaps gives this theory even more credence is that in the entire 40 plus years that the Elon School was operating, there were no criminal investigations into the school, despite dozens of accusations of illegal activity. Causing many to wonder if the government wanted to cover up their potential connection and funding to the institution. 
There's way more of a rabbit hole you can go down, especially in Reddit threads on this. I try not to go full on tinfoil head into conspiracy theory land, but I'll definitely rock a saran wrap headband from time to time when the occasion calls for it. This definitely makes me wonder. Um, anyone with more info about Dr. Gerald E. Davidson's pre-Harvard days and the startup funding for the Elon School, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to have to wait until I'm like 90 for the secret government documents to become declassified. Hey! Anyway, we know that Joe Ritchie and Dr. Gerald Davidson start the Elon School in 1970. The word Elon is French for energy, power, and vigor. But they should have named the school Spectacle de Horror. They opened their very first campus, Elon One, near Sebago Lake in Maine. Because Maine had very little restrictions and oversight when it came to behavioral programs slash boarding schools. This first campus is where some of the worst abuses took place. Obviously, well before the days of internet message boards, so we don't hear a ton from the survivors of this era. Also, this first campus burnt down in a fire. The cause of the fire was undetermined. But Alon had a school bus load of insurance to build a new modular-style maximum security campus nestled in the deep woods of Waterford, Maine. Sounds delightful, right? So now it's time to go to school. Allow me to walk you through the typical student experience at the Elon School. Picture this. You're a teen in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe staying out too late, listening to Alice Cooper, and dabbling with the reefer. So naturally, your folks are freaking out. They don't know what to do with you. So they shell out up to $60,000 per year to send you to Elon. Only you don't even know you're going yet. You see, your parents have also hired a teen escort service. No, not that kind of escort service. This one comes to your house in the middle of the night while you're dead asleep, cozy in bed, and kidnaps you from your home, then takes you against your will to this mysterious institution hidden in the main woods. Hooray, it's your first day of school at Elon. What are you going to wear? Lucky for you, you don't have to decide. They provide you with drab, colorless clothing. Then they pair you with a, quote, buddy, an older student who orients you by torturing you into submission. Yeah, the fellow students really do a lot of the enforcement and punishing on campus. You see, at Elan, there are two types of students, high achievers known as strengths and low achievers known as non-strengths. A non-strength is not allowed to address a strength or employee unless they are addressed first. This is one of the many, many rules referred to as guilts. If you commit a guilt, you will be subject to one of the following punishments. A sign around your neck intended to shame you, something like, help, I'm an emotionally crippled monster, or ask me why I'm a slut. If you do something that's perceived to be babyish or immature, you can be forced to wear an adult diaper over your clothes and keep a pacifier in your mouth. You might also be compelled to clean bathrooms with a toothbrush or even toilets with your bare hands. And of course, spanking, being forced to dig ditches, wear a straitjacket, cut off your hair and be deprived of food, water or sleep were common occurrences. And these are just the penalties for minor infractions. 
And just a heads up, things are about to get even more disturbing. Um, if you're not down for it, fast forward a couple minutes. Higher punishments at the Elan School included something called shot downs, being locked in the, quote, box, uh, which was a pitch black room with little food and infrequent bathroom breaks. Sometimes you're in there alone, and sometimes you're in there with a fellow student. There are survivors of Elan that later come forward, sharing that they had been physically and sexually abused while in the box. There is also the corner, which was a more public form of humiliation. A student would be compelled to sit in the corner, facing right up against the wall, usually in a common area like the mess hall, and fellow students were encouraged to come up and dump buckets of trash on their heads. They highly encouraged a culture of shaming and humiliation, as well as dumping disgusting things on top of people. Elon was famous for a concoction called electric sauce, this was a mixture of ketchup, mustard, sometimes cigarette butts and ash, garbage slurry, and even feces. This electric sauce would get dumped over students' heads. And to make that even worse, a lot of times these kids were forced to lay on the ground for hours in this filth or walk around for the rest of the day, prohibited from cleaning themselves up until granted permission. I know, I can hardly believe it too. It sounds like Stephen King couldn't even write this. Elon was an absolute horrific living nightmare. And your first instinct as a student would be to call mom and dad and tell them to get you out of there. But phone calls and letters were highly monitored and censored. If you complained, your phone call would be disconnected and your letters would be destroyed. So plan B, you try to run away. If you did that, your shoelaces would be taken away and you would be mandated to wear a neon yellow shirt and tiny pink shorts. Some students were even forced to wear a pink bunny costume, their legs shackled together and their shoes taken away. Once in a while, a student would escape, but that wouldn't go well either. In fact, in 1993, a 17-year-old Elan student named Dawn managed to break free of the campus, and she started hitchhiking. She was picked up by a truck driver named James Robert Cruz Jr., and this man rapes and strangles Dawn, discarding her body on the side of the road. He was convicted for her murder and suspected in other murders. Dawn's story became a cautionary tale on campus warning students about the dangers of running away. But still, some attempted it. In very extreme cases, a frequent runaway would be thrown into a dumpster and guarded by a fellow student. If that offender got away, the student guarding would be thrown into the dumpster. Ugh, yeah, fun times, right? Imagine the yearbook pictures. Most likely to succeed at the Elan School meant you graduated and became a member of the staff with no psychological training or educational background. Usually you were barely in your 20s. Some staff members were depraved, sadistic, psychopaths, and some were victims who had been emotionally and psychologically abused for so long, they completely bought into the school and its teachings. Speaking of teachings, let's talk education at Elan. They don't make students learn the boring subjects like maths and social studies. They enjoy partaking in other enrichment exercises, like ring fights and general meetings. Let's start with the ring. 
This is perhaps the most severe punishment you could get at a lawn. If you needed to be severely punished, you were forced into the middle of a ring of students. And one by one, you had to fight fellow students until you were beaten into submission. In 1982, a 14-year-old Elon student named Phil Williams Jr., who was being punished for complaining of frequent and intense migraine headaches, he was sent into the ring. Phil goes three rounds with students and then falls to the ground and he starts vomiting. He is taken away to the infirmary and later dies. And at the time, the family only hears that Phil died of natural causes from an embolism. Only 30 years later does Phil's sister learn about the probable truth of her brother's death when she connects with fellow Elon survivors on message boards. That is when she learns the truth about the ring and Phil being beaten right before his untimely death. Yeah, so that's the ring program at Elon. Now on to the general meetings. This consisted of all the students, sometimes up to 50 kids, being called into a common area where a broomstick was laid out in the middle of the room. And students were encouraged to take out their verbal rage on each other. And let's just say they weren't using their library voices. No, these were chaotic, screaming, shouting matches of verbal abuses being hurled across the room at one another for hours on end. And these meetings took place up to four or five times a day. And it's in one of these general meetings, a student supposedly confesses to a murder. And this murder confession will ripple out over the next two decades, eventually sending one man to prison, compelling Joe Ritchie to go on the record, and the Elan School's eventual demise. All of that coming up in part two of our back-to-school special on the Elan School. Ugh. Yeah, this one's brutal. I'm glad I have a week to decompress before bringing you part two. And hopefully by that time I will have devised a sufficient punishment to inflict on the guys that perpetrated this psychological torture on people in the name of science and or rehabilitation. Right now I'm thinking they should all be thrown into a room and forced to watch on repeat that film version of the Cats musical starring Jason Derulo as Rum Tum Tugger, the best unintended horror movie of all time. But honestly, I don't think there's punishment enough here on Earth to make up for the pain these guys inflicted. There are so many of us with a personal connection to the troubled teen industry. I'm glad it's finally getting its reckoning, but I am appalled at how long this was allowed to go on and how many programs are still out there operating. It's very difficult to hear. I can't even begin to fathom living through that. But I am so incredibly grateful to their survivors for bringing these stories to light. And I thank you for listening to it. You can tell me what you think so far. Email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Please keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends because this ain't no general meeting, okay? And stay tuned until after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. 
I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, a quick update. Coco Berthamon is off my ranking this week. They released a basic filler episode with a psychologist who's never actually met Coco, but analyzed her case. I don't mind these kinds of episodes as a debriefing after the series is complete, like an epilogue, but I was bummed to have this instead of momentum on the investigation. I will also be listening to the first episode of The Estate, which drops today, about a man investigating whether or not his deceased father had a man killed. It sounds juicy. And with that out of the way, let's get down to business. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Betrayal on the Bayou. Here's a synopsis from the show page. For almost two decades, DEA Special Agent Chad Scott ruled the streets just north of New Orleans. He controlled a network of snitches by convincing people he arrested to work for him as informants. Chad would stop at nothing to put drug dealers behind bars. His successes won awards at the DEA, but his willingness to bend the rules earned him a terrifying reputation on the streets. Some called him the golden boy. Others called him the white devil. Investigators go over his career with a fine tooth comb, asking the question, is Chad Scott the greatest DEA agent in the South or is he a criminal? This one is starting to get real demoralizing. I'm like, how can the system of the DEAs and informants get any worse? And then it does. Allies come to Chad's aid, further abusing and threatening informants for turning on him. And a network of good old boys are activated to come to Chad's aid and intimidate potential witnesses. I'm disappointed in this drug enforcement apparatus, but I appreciate these issues being brought to light on Betrayal on the Bayou. At the number two spot, we have Gallery of Lies. Here's a rundown from the show page. For years, Helga Achenbach has been among the world's most successful art dealers. But with one treacherous move, he lands in prison. In season six of Chameleon Gallery of Lies, host Bajan Stevens sets out on the international trail of the most famous criminal you've never heard of. With unprecedented access to an ex-con, Bajan attempts to solve the riddle of who Helga really is and who he might become. I just finished episode one. They definitely like to disparage the upper elite class, but it's still kind of a bougie listen. This first episode, it's a slow build, but it continues to get really good. It reminds me a little of that show, White Lotus. Uh, The coming up on teaser sounds amazing. It's not going to be for everyone, but I'm totally here for it. Excited to explore more in the gallery of lies. And at the number one spot, we have Over My Dead Body. 
Here's a reminder from the show page. When Mike Williams vanishes on a hunting trip, the authorities presume he was eaten by alligators. But one woman begins to suspect the true predators may lurk much closer to home. It sets her on a tireless crusade to uncover what really happened to Mike. A story about an obsessive love affair, a scandalous secret, and a mother's battle for justice. We are making gains in this story. We have one suspect in custody and another will be looked into next week. This show is respectful to the victim, responsible in their storytelling, and still wicked entertaining. Plus, we are seeing a real resolution. This is such a satisfying listen. I'm bummed out that there is only one more episode, and I'll be eagerly awaiting the conclusion of Over My Dead Body. Now for my miss of the week. We have Lost in Panama. Here's a summary from the show. In 2014, Dutch friends Lysane Froon and Chris Kremers disappeared while hiking a jungle trail in Panama. Two months later, investigators found their remains as well as a backpack with a digital camera filled with photos that hinted a darker story. What happened to Chris and Lysane? Already, first episode of this was very intriguing, uh, telling the story of what happened to the girls. But then the story turns into an investigation based on rumors, ignoring conflicting evidence, and wild, wild speculation. The way over my dead body is excellent journalism that captivates. This is reckless fodder pretending to be an investigation that goes absolutely nowhere. This show is a waste of your time, and it gives me pleasure to tell Lost in Panama to get lost and send it down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if Over My Dead Body will stay in the number one spot as the series continues or if another show will surprise attack and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show did you send down your podcast queue trapdoor with pleasure. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.